Good morning. Welcome to Christ Community Presbyterian Church. Glad that you're with us this morning. We are uh, going through a study in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, if you're a visitor here, that might be a, an unfamiliar territory. Uh, even if you're not a visitor here, it's fairly unfamiliar uh, in terms of uh, where we're headed. But, but uh, hopefully, as we've gone through these past uh, few weeks, uh, you're coming to see the beauty of it, the, the, the way it exposes our hearts and our sin, the way it shows us the person of, and work of Jesus Christ, even in uh, that Old Testament uh, picture. And so we're continuing um, in that study. We're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 to 31. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 to 31. Uh, just as uh, I'll give you a little bit of an idea where we're at in the storyline, or you might say the, the sermon, if you look at all of Deuteronomy, kind of is a whole sermon of Moses on the plains of Moab before the people are entering into the promised land. Um, and he has just uh, sort of revealed his own brokenness. Uh, and now he's moving uh, towards instruction uh, in, in, in the law. And we looked at that a little bit last week, and we're going to continue that not just the importance of the law, generally speaking, but now he's going to talk a little bit about idolatry, the the sort of fundamental heart issue of idolatry. Um, So that's where we're at in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 to 31. Let's turn to the word of God. It's printed for you in the bulletin. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully, very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies uh, in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth, and beware lest you Raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When your father, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, 
the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we need your help to understand your word. And so we ask that you would uh, open our hearts uh, to hear the good news of the gospel, even through these stern warnings. Uh, Lord, we want to see Christ. We want to know the mercy and steadfast love of you. So we ask that you would show it to us this morning, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you love more than anything else or anyone else? What is that one thing, or maybe more than one thing, this is the case for some of us like me, if that you do not have it, life would seem meaningless, maybe even hopeless. Jesus famously told the rich young ruler who asked him, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? He, the Lord Jesus said to him, go and sell all your possessions. He was a very upright young man. He had obeyed the law of God uh, his whole life. And Jesus said, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. And he went away in despair. It was a bridge too far for this man. His wealth was his everything. It was his idol. The thing he loved more than God or anything else. Our text this morning deals with the problem of idolatry in the life of Israel. In some ways, uh, the idolatry we see in the text is pretty foreign to us. The idea of carving images of gods and bowing down to pieces of wood and stone is at least for Western American culture, uh, is a foreign concept. But idolatry isn't. It's not foreign to any culture. Uh, In fact, uh, I would argue that idolatry is the state of being for humanity in the fall. It's it's who we are as idolaters. Calvin famously said, and and, uh, uh, Bryce quoted, uh, that our hearts are idol factory or forges of idols is uh, one translation. Um, yeah, it's said a lot. What does it mean? We'll look into that a little bit. But it's our default. It's our resting state. That's who we are. And the biggest problem for us is that we often can't see our idols. Our idols are so wrapped up in who we are that we're blind to them. It's like it's like a pixelated picture, you know, what do they call those um, when you just have dots or whatever? You get really close to it, and it's just a kind of a blur. You can't see the picture, but when you step back from it, you have a vision of the picture. You understand it. We're often like that with our idols. We're so close to them. They're so intimate to us that we can't see them. We don't recognize them. And so this morning, uh, I want us to step back. I want us to think about our idols. I want us to consider our hearts, those things that we love more than God. 
In other words, if we were to lose these things, it would even cause us to question life and the meaning of life itself. Uh, so this is the hope, though, because we don't, it's easy to look at our idols and be, woe is us, there's no hope. But there's hope in the text. And, and my hope is that we will see that the Lord is faithful even to faithless idolaters like you and I. That he's faithful even to faithless idolaters like you and I. And we're going to look at this in three parts. The first part is our resting state, idolatry. That is our resting, that is our baseline is idolatry. And we'll try and prove that. Second, I want us to see that idols don't give life, but they take it away. They take life from us. They offer a life, and then they don't give it. Uh, and then thirdly, our faithful Lord alone gives life, even to idolaters. He is faithful, though we are not. So that's where we're headed this morning. First, our resting state, uh, idolatry. Our text begins with a warning. Watch yourselves and beware. <laughs> They're like... Watch and beware lest you act corruptly. It's like a big red warning sign, blinking, danger ahead. Watch out. I, once, I had a friend of mine a few years back. She was um, from Arizona, um, and she was, she was home for the summer. She was a college student, and she uh, was hiking the Grand Canyon. Um, and I've never been to the Grand Canyon. It's a goal of mine to get there someday. But she was hiking the Grand Canyon, and she was going to do a hike in a day with her family. They were going to go down and come up all in one day. Now, there are signs, and she took a picture of the sign uh, for me, uh, saying, hey, Rob, check this out. And it's a very graphic warning, people. Don't try to do this in one day if you're not prepared for it. And she just kind of laughed it off and just went and did it. Uh, sort of uh, paid no attention to those graphic warning signs and continued to make that strenuous trek. Well, so it is with the warning signs for Israel. Notice how emphatic Moses is concerning idolatry. Don't make any images of anything created, not male or female, not of any animal on the earth, not of any bird in the sky, not of any fish in the sea, not of any stars uh, in the heavens or the sun or the moon or anything in the heavenly sphere or in the created order. Don't make anything and worship it. It's interesting uh, it's like, it seems like a little overboard. You're a bit repetitive here, Moses. We get the picture. Don't make an idol. Um, he's drawing here, though, from the creation account, from Genesis 1. Uh, this is language that closely tied to the creation account. And the creation account, of course, is the declaration that God created. God was. There was nothing else. And there was God alone, who is the uncreated being. And everything that we see was from him. From the stars and the sun and the moon to the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts in the ground, even man, the image uh, bearers of God, are created. He's saying, don't worship any of that. And the reason is that God is not created. In fact, uh, he's completely other. He's wholly other. He's transcended. Uh, Notice how the text focuses in on him being without form. Remember last week it ended with this description of the mountain of God where the people had come to Mount Sinai when they had first left, uh, as it's described here, the furnace of of Egypt. 
and had left Egypt and been delivered from Egypt through the Red Sea and had come to Mount Sinai where they met with God and then that burning fire and, and cloud that was on the mountain. And from amidst that mountain, God spoke to the people of the law. And do you remember last week how you, we noted that it, it focused on the point that he was without form? It's without form. My... Uh, my kids have, over the course of years, been slowly plodding through the children's catechism. And uh, one of the early questions in the children's catechism is this question, what is God? What is God? And they could probably rattle it off because uh, we pounded it home week in and week out. Uh, God is a spirit and does not have a body like man. And we rehearse this not simply because it's a neat theological reality. Isn't that an interesting thought? God is a spirit and not have a body like men. Uh, it's more than just a truth in that sense. It's more than just the reality. But we rehearse it. Why? Because our hearts are prone to worship the creature rather than the creator. Uh, we read this earlier in our in our uh, 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 scripture reading, Romans chapter 1 points this out. We were looking at this in our high school class today for Sunday school. Uh, this concept of uh, our, our, our propensity to take what is created and make it our object of worship. This is the, 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 at the heart of the human condition. Hear these words from Paul in Romans 1. I'll just read it again. Verse 24. Therefore... God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. The creator who is blessed forever. Amen, Paul says. Um, Idolatry. It's our resting place. Our resting state. It's who. And I'll be the first to say, hi, my name is Rob. Apart from God's grace, I'm an idolater. The first time this struck me, I think, as a kid, um, was I was in high school, and I was obsessed. I was obsessed with pretty much any sport, but for me, the sport uh, was basketball. And um, my junior year, uh, after my junior year, my coach... uh, recommended and encouraged me to go to five-star basketball camp. Um, and uh, I went to that camp. This is a camp that was very, you know, I was low, 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 low on the totem pole of five-star basketball camp. This is a camp that the likes of Michael Jordan and, like, you name the best players in the NBA all went to this camp. Um, so in my mind's eye, I'm thinking, wow, this is it. This is Mecca. This is the place to go. If you want to be a basketball player, if you want to get noticed, if you want to get a school, this is where you go. You show your stuff. This was, I was building it up in my mind like I was going to be something in basketball. It was my world. I remember getting there. Firstly, realizing how terrible I really was at the sport, um, comparatively. That was a crushing blow. Secondly, to realize how much of an idol this was. In fact, we, you know, like you go to a summer camp and you have motivational speakers and people that come and say things. And I remember uh, the director having a conversation with the whole camp. We're all sitting there on the basketball court, listening to the words of wisdom from this, this God who has 
created this basketball camp that enables us all to go and to become NBA stars. Yeah. And he said, if you want to be great, this is your life. This is your all. You breathe, you eat, you play, you do nothing else. You, your entire life has to be consumed with and about this. And this light switch, just like a light switch went off. So I looked around and I thought to myself, this is idolatry. It's my own idolatry. This crushing blow of not being good enough, of realizing what it took was to sell my soul to this thing. Anyway, it was the first time that I really had a sense of the nature of my own heart. And Moses assumes this of Israel as well. Notice how in verse 25 and following, uh, uh, there's this section that there was a near certainty with which Moses speaks concerning the future idolatry of Israel once they entered the land. You see here in verse 25, there's this uh, statement here uh, where it says, when, you're, when you father children and children and the children, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, and then it says, if you act corruptly by making carved images in the form of anything. I just want to point out, and this was uh, discussed at my community group, which I was very helpful, and I went back and looked at the Hebrew and confirmed. That if, that, that, that uh, little statement of if is not in the text. It's an interpretation decision that the ESV made. And there's probably some good reason for it. But the the weight of the text is when you father children and children's children and when you have grown old in the land and when you act corruptly. (laughs) See the certainty of it? No if. And this is played out in the rest of the text here. If you'll notice, if you go down a few verses, um, he goes on and he says, and the Lord, this is verse 27, and the Lord will scatter you among the, the, the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you and there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. It's a bit depressing to think about. And we don't like to think about it. We don't often like to dwell on this reality that our natural resting state is forming idols. is worshiping the creation rather than the creator. But I think it's important that we do that step back. We take a step back and we start to think about our hearts and start to look, okay, if this is the reality, I need to do a bit of self-examination. Where is it that I know my heart is prone towards worshiping the creation rather than the creator? Because we never state it boldly. We never, we never say, I love X more than I love God. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we do sometimes, but that's generally not how it works. It's usually in our actions, in the way that we live, that we express our idolatrous heart. So, what are some of these ways? Material wealth is an obvious idol, especially very close to our American hearts. Um, so close, in fact, that we have trouble seeing it, right? 
And even when we start to catch glimpses of it, like we say, yeah, maybe I love this stuff more than I love God. We always look to somebody else and say, yeah, but I'm not like that. I'm not obsessed with wealth like they are. Uh, We always compare. But there's other idols as well. Education, family, relationships, our wives, our husbands, our kids, our phones, our leisure, our me time, our health and body image. Are having lots of friends or having lots of likes on Facebook or having lots of followers on Twitter, our reputation, our social status, sports, our careers, politics. I mean, we just go on, right? All these things that we can put as ultimate, as first in our hearts. And when any of these things become for us the driving force in our lives, over and above our creator and our redeemer, we have fashioned idols. When our identity is so wrapped up in them that if we are to lose them, we feel like we are dying. We have fashioned for ourselves idols. And unfortunately, idolatry is our resting state. It's our default position. And I've, as, I was, as I was wrestling through the text, I was contemplating, why? Why? Why is this the default position? Why is this the sin that creeps up in the life of Israel over and over again, the driving force of their abandoning God? Why idolatry? Other than the fact that we're sinners. I think it's that we... Worship a God who is unseen. We love a God who is unseen. That's, that's, that's the Christian faith. You, you, we have a God who is no form, who, who is transcendent, who is holy, who is other. Uh, and that's, that's hard. There's not the immediate, visible, tangible reward that's associated with earthly idols, right? Uh, we are a visual people. We are stimulated by our senses, and we want something we can touch, something we can hold on to, something that will give us instant gratification and pleasure. But God calls us to put our faith in the unseen, in something that we cannot touch. It doesn't mean that it doesn't bring joy or pleasure. It gives us deferred pleasure. It gives us joy now, but not ultimate now. We have uh, our, our faith is unseen, but it will be seen. There's an already not yet reality to our faith. But in the meantime, we are bombarded with creation saying to us, I can satisfy your deepest, give you what you want. You don't need to wait. You don't need God. What you need is Dot, dot, dot. The American dream is, in some ways, the idol of our society. And every advertisement, every image on our screens plays directly to that basic sinful condition. Our resting state. We want our pleasure not deferred, but now. The problem is, and this is my second point, is that idols don't give life. They take it away. They take it away. Notice first, Moses brings up 
his inability to go into the land. This is the third time he brings this up over the course of the past few weeks. And, and there's a temptation to think that, oh, he's just bitter. Moses is just bitter. He's jealous. He wants to go into the land. Uh, and he just keeps harping on this thing. It's your fault and I can't get into the land. But I don't think that's the purpose for Moses bringing it up. I don't think that's the reason. I think here, in this section, he is highlighting the fact that removal from the land is a real possibility. He's saying, don't be lulled into complacency. Don't go back to that resting state. Look at me. This is the effect of sin. You will not get to stay in the land as I don't get to go into the land and enjoy the blessing. Please, it's part of that warning that he's making. You see, for Moses, he even goes on to say, I will die outside the land. It's death. And then he proceeds to say to Israel, when you go and you worship idols, you too will be removed from the land. This is a real consequence of your idolatry. You will utterly perish. Those are the words used. Utterly perish and be utterly destroyed and be scattered into the nations and be reduced. This is what's going to happen. In other words, those idols for the Israelites, those Baals, those Ashtra, which promised all sorts of life, right? The Baals they, they, and, and Asherah were fertility gods. They would have offered life and fruitfulness. And, and, and they, they, they were meant to bring fertility to the land and fertility to the loin, if you will. That was the goal of, of those gods. And what, what, what Moses is saying is, no, they will not give you life. In fact, they will give you death because you'll be removed from the land of blessing. It isn't those gods of wood and stone that give fertility. It's the God of heaven and earth. And here's the thing. This is the way of all idols. They offer the world. And in the end, even when you've obtained the world, you're left empty. You're left longing for more. Now, I want to make a very small caveat The Lord blesses us all with all sorts of good things. He's meant for us to enjoy them. All those things that I mentioned before, your your vocation, your family, these are good things that the Lord's given to us. But they are not an end in themselves. They are not ultimate. The goal of life is not the created order. They're meant to give us joy but not to satisfy our ultimate longings. But more than just not satisfying us, the idols actually demand more from us. Remember that story I told about my own sort of awakening to idolatry? I remember Art was the guy's name. I don't remember his last name. It was kind of funky last name. I just was struck by the way he said, you have to sacrifice life itself to get the glory of basketball's stardom or whatever it was. You have to ask yourself, what is the cost? Not just in the end, but in the day-to-day. What is the cost of that idol that you harbor in your heart? How does it affect your relationship with your family and your friends? How does it, how does it impact uh, your time? How does it 
take away from other things that are more significant and more important. That's what idols do. They, they, they demand service. In fact, you can start to identify our idols by their costliness. Do, do they demand from us such an allegiance that we're willing to sacrifice all these other things at their altar? It's your job. I'm going to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. I'm going to move up the food chain. And if I never see my kids, I never see my kids. And you'll make all sorts of justifications for it. Well, it's good for them because I can provide for them and I can give them a good life and they can have all these things. And See how idols work and demand from us? Friends, our text gives us grave warnings. We know that these idols don't satisfy. We know that they take life and demand sacrifice and that they ultimately lead to our destruction. We know that it's our resting state, our default position to produce these idols of the heart. But, in my final point and conclusion, our faithful Lord gives life even to idolaters like you and me. And only by His Spirit can we begin to root out those idols of the heart. The power of God in us. Our text is full of warnings and the consequences for idolatry. And the idolatry of Israel, as I've already noted, seems like an inevitability. <laughs> After you've rested in the land for a while, you will... And if you were Israel about to enter the land, you might think, why even bother? If this is such a certainty, if we know this is going to happen, why even bother trying to fight? And we're often confronted with our own sinfulness. We are confronted with its regularity, with its inevitability, with its all-consuming nature. And we, too, can lose heart and think, why even bother trying to fight against this reality of our hearts? Well, our text gives us hope. And I don't want us to miss this hope. I mentioned my friend who ignored the signs and continued on her hike. But those graphic signs were in themselves a mercy to hikers. Uh, maybe not to her because she ignored it, but... Imagine if the um, uh, National Park authorities didn't put those signs up. What would happen? Oh, I'm in my flip-flops. I'm going to go on a hike. Well, let's go down to the bottom of this neat hill and go see what's at the bottom. And you can imagine the amount of people who find themselves stuck in the middle of, of this adventure without enough water and without the proper equipment or whatever's necessary. You see, this warning that God makes to us here in Deuteronomy is part of God's mercy to us. It wasn't just to show them how terrible they were, but it was to remind them you have to beware, you have to be vigilant, you have to watch out, you have to take care, you have to be persistent in recognizing this danger. 
It's God's mercy. He could have left them to, his own, to their own device and said, oh, Israel's just going to do what Israel does. But he doesn't. He warns them about the danger of unfaithfulness. And this is why throughout Deuteronomy, Moses makes a big deal about teaching these things to your children and your children's children. You see, knowing our enemy, knowing our sin, knowing the proclivity of our hearts and our natural state enables us to fight against it. When when God shows us our hearts and shows us our proclivity, it gives us the awareness to say, okay, I know the problem, and now at least we can face it. When we don't tell our children and our children's children about the nature of the human condition, we're setting them up for disaster. If we don't tell our own selves the regular problems of our hearts and idolatry, we are setting ourselves up for disaster. So the warnings of God are a mercy to us, and in the warnings, there are hope. But even when we run headlong down the path of idolatry, when we find ourselves serving idols and perishing, there is still hope. There's still hope. Notice the words at the end of our text. When you finally find yourselves in full-blown idolatry and when you realize that it brings only death and not life, when you are at your wit's end, when you are scattered among the nations, when things are terrible, it says, you will seek the Lord. Your whole heart and your whole soul will be moved to find hope and you will look to the Lord and notice it's not just your effort or anything to that effect. Notice verse 31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you. He will not destroy you. He will not forget his covenant with you or with the the covenant that he made with your fathers. And what was that covenant? We've looked at this in the past, but that covenant is these words. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will love you because I love you. I will have mercy because I will have mercy. I know you. It's all the covenant language of Scripture. He's reminding them, this is my nature. You may be faithless, Israel, You may wander away. You may be utterly taken out of the land and reduced and put into exile. And you may be under the thumb of Babylon and Assyria and all these nations. But I still love you. And I will redeem you. And I will bring you back. I will have mercy on you. Because though you are faithless, I am faithful. In Colossians chapter 1, that God is invisible, right? We've talked about the nature of God being unseen. But here's just a picture of the grace and mercy of God. He gave us the image that we were to worship, didn't he? Here are these words in Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Who is? Who is? Christ. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And here are the words of the gospel. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. You see, here were a bunch of idolaters. Israel, you guys are going to go away. You're going to be unfaithful. You're going to look to the world, to the creation. And what I'm going to bring to you is one image of myself that will bring salvation and you will mar him and you will beat him and you will crucify him and he will die on your behalf and he will be raised again from the dead so that an idolater, unfaithful person like you can have life. The image of God, bruised and broken on our behalf. That's the gospel. We have life in Christ. Broken, sinful, idolaters whose hearts are idol factories have life because of this covenant-keeping, faithful Lord and Savior. That's good news. And the good news is that He didn't leave us to our own devices, but He sent to us His Holy Spirit that goes into our hearts and roots out the idols. Who cleans house and gives us hearts, as we read in Ezekiel, that are hearts of flesh that beat for God. What a great God we have. Be vigilant. See the idols. Repent. Turn and trust in Christ and recognize the power of the Spirit that enables us to put to death and to kill off the idols of our heart. All praise and glory be to Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your grace to us. We thank you for the image bearer, your Son, whom we rejected, whom we crucified yet who gave us life. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness despite our unfaithfulness. Lord, help us to walk in faith, trusting and resting, not in our sinful idolatry, but in you. We need this, and it's only by your grace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.